that was a three-hour report. <laughs> yeah, I cannot shut. Because well, we had up. different feelings on something, and then you know. Oh go yeah, off. there was there is a debate section in the <laughs> middle of that that will probably cut all of. I'm Charlie Sohn, a screenwriter and journalist. I'm Agnes Reese, a pop singer and songwriter. And this is Mysteries of the Euroverse. Today's episode covers Eurovision and contemporary pop. First, we deep dive into Eurovision's complicated relationship with pop music. Then we talk to pop rock darlings Joker Out, whose 2023 entry for Slovenia took the festival by storm. Finally, we sit down with Broadway's Telly Leung for a game about vocal performance at Eurovision that we're calling Killer Notes or Killer Nodes. We take a look behind the scenes at all the scandal songs and queens. So come along as we traverse all the mysteries of the Euroverse. All right, we're here for another episode of Mysteries of the Euroverse. And Magnus, what are we talking about today? Well, today we're talking about contemporary pop and how it relates to Eurovision. This is a topic that I've been very excited about, and I know you've been very excited about, because Eurovision is the most watched song competition in the world, right? Hundreds of millions of viewers. And there have been times when around the world, uh, Eurovision has produced a lot of chart-topping hits. Totally. And then there have been times when it hasn't. We've gotten increasingly used to music competitions. Yeah. There hasn't really been anything but Eurovision that have really successfully been able to be a music competition that features original music. But the question is, what space does that music live in? You know, we talked about in our first episode, the the big dry spell, right? Uh, our favorite gal, Gina G, broke. Yeah. But then really wasn't broken until recently when we talk about American charts with yeah. uh, Duncan Lawrence. Not that we lied to you, but we did really frame it in our first episode as a purely American Eurovision phenomenon. Right. But in truth, I think that as far as the reach of the songs from Eurovision into popular culture, you see a sort of similar arc. So in this episode, we want to dive in and look at the history of Eurovision's relationship to contemporary pop music, and then just sort of talk a little bit about why the changes in chart success have occurred and what that means for Eurovision going forward. Obviously, we've talked about this already. The competition started in 1956, and I think it was a competition that was created in the image of the music industry at the time. We had an orchestra on stage. We had people kind of do a stand and sing, right? They're standing at a mic, maybe with a uh, mic stand maybe handheld if they're really crazy, you know, and uh, slow down. Yeah. Um, and this way of presenting music really lent itself to uh, popular music at the time. And obviously this is sort of my narrow background, but it reminds me so much of the the Broadway musical, right? It's not like Rodgers and Hammerstein were trying to write pop music at the time. It's just there was a natural affinity between theatrical music and the popular music of the time, right? And then that diverged. And then suddenly you had this form of music that existed in a little bit of its own space, right? Which is sort of where Broadway's been since. And I think Eurovision's had a different trajectory, but there is that same kind of moment of a spot, Absolutely. I think this, it comes back to how do you discover music, right? I mean, the overture was literally created to make sure you would hear melodies twice. 
Yes. Uh, so that you would hum the tunes leaving the theater. Because yeah. you couldn't go on Spotify and listen to it right afterwards. Like the evolution of Broadway's relationship to contemporary pop, there are kind of two sides to the relationship, right? There is the fact that the world moved in one direction, and then there's also the art form that we're talking about, either Broadway or Eurovision, moved in another direction. Uh, in also, response, maybe. Totally, and I think you also have to kind of grapple with this idea of a purist. The Broadway comparison makes a lot of sense because people will say, well, why should it be pop music? We are the Broadway community. We are the theater fans. Why are we tailoring to the people who are not that? It's part of a long tradition, right? Yes. To talk about that history, right? In 1956, Eurovision songs then, even though they charted, didn't necessarily always adhere to just the rubric of popular music, right? A perfect example is one of Germany's two songs that they sent in 1956 was sung by a German Jew who was persecuted by the Nazis. And he was singing about Germany's uh, unwillingness to um, face up to its past. You know, a brill-building songwriter in the years following or a Tin Pan Alley uh, songwriter in the years previous. No one was trying to write a pop hit back then would have chosen that as subject matter, sure. right? So Eurovision always kind of had this complicated relationship to pop because it was about national culture, but then also it was about having good bops. If anything, I think kind of the biggest mainstream and in a way music competition in the world kind of has become that because of the outliers in many ways. Yeah, that's uh, a very good point. If we then go into the 70s, music is starting to change. And especially when we get into the 80s, things get very electronic. Right. Right. Things did really start to change with the introduction of electronic music because of some of the Eurovision rules. Like you said, the orchestra was around until... 1999. A chart can change as quickly as its people. Right. One person comes out with an electronic song, everyone flocks around it, and it's number one. Right. But in a competition that's structured around, okay, the host country provided the orchestra. Yes. And then they would bring their own conductor. Right. Okay? So that makes perfect sense. So then music starts to change. When do you decide as a competition to change the entire structure. I think it, like somewhere in between Kraftwerk and the Backstreet Boys, I want it that way. Eurovision probably should have woken up to the fact that like the orchestra was like not a necessity to have at every year's competition. We have an interview coming up with Sally Ann Triplett and her second time in Eurovision, I think is a particularly interesting example of this, right? If you look at the recorded version, it is very much of its time in the early 80s. It's got electronics. It's very contemporary sounding. And the Eurovision performance, they reorchestrated it, right? One step further and I would have been dead. Anything to get your attention, no matter how I try. And the interesting thing is the album version charted and was a huge success. And people have all sorts of explanations for why, but the Eurovision performance didn't do as well as I think people had expected it to, given the popularity of the song. But when you live in a time where someone's going to produce something differently for the radio than they will for Eurovision, I think that in and of itself is proof, right? Yes, that that it's not fully representing its time. 
Yes. I think also the language rule really plays into this as well. Right. From uh, 1965 to 1973, there was a rule that every entry had to perform in an official language of their country. It was reintroduced in 1977 and stuck around through 1998, basically a 30-year span. Right. Where a country like Sweden, who most of their victories have been in English, right. they couldn't do that. Right. And especially interesting is that in that three-year gap, ABBA wins with Waterloo. Right. Probably one of the most successful exports to come out of the competition. You can hear ABBA talk about this in interviews too, where they say that Eurovision was the only way out of Sweden. It's yeah. not even to get to America. I just like imagining Sweden as this giant fortress and poor Abba's there trying to get out. But then they had their Waterloo. Yeah, they had their Waterloo. So if you think about how you'd produce a TV show in the, in the US, right? Um, if you changed a rule and then such a huge success came out of it, you'd be like, well, obviously we're keeping this. This yes. is proof of concept. Right. So the fact that just a couple of years later, they went back on that rule, I think that really proves this idea that the the competition wasn't necessarily focusing on the things that would drive commercial success. It was about keeping the Swedes out of pop music, which given what happened in the 90s, I feel like pretty positive about. Yeah. <laughs> no, I think the language rule is actually a great way to talk about this period in the 80s and 90s where Eurovision departed from contemporary pop. But it's also a perfect way to talk about what happened next, which is the late 90s, early 2000s, where you saw not only now everyone's allowed to sing in English. You also saw the institution of my favorite hobby horse, the rules against political songs. And one way of looking at this is a real shift on the part of the EBU to make the competition more of a pop music competition. Eurovision went away from live music and to a point where it actually bans live music. Right. Everything has to be formed to track. So they have the thing they can have no plugged in instruments. A, a famous band like Modeskin, for example, yes, they're playing instruments on stage, but, you know, essentially they're doing the instrumental version of lip syncing. Um, Do you know what the justification is for this? Like, I get the orchestra. It's a legacy thing. It was a big part of the branding, right, of the contest. It's a hard thing to give up. Mm -hmm. To then turn around and go, actually, we really want to make sure that the music you hear is not being played live on stage. Well, I will say, I, I, I think it has a lot to do with production. Yeah. So when you're playing live instruments, if you have a hard cut of a three minutes, if someone right. has a song that's two minutes and 58 seconds and they played a little bit slower, now it's three minutes and three yeah. seconds, uh, are they disqualified? Um, there's already so many technical aspects of that show that's hard that yeah. I think... That the music just kind of has to... <laughs> I mean, that's one way to put it. I will say, ironically, it's one area where maybe they were ahead. When we saw Betty Who, for example, she had two musicians on stage. But yeah. what you're hearing is a lot more. But this is my thing where I don't get the rule because like there is a established way to do that. You can play along to tracks. It locks you into a metronome. I think it has a lot to do with, too, that they have to reset the stage in like 30 seconds, depending on the instrument, making sure that you're wheeling on a drum set. And you don't really get to test the sound. You don't have a commercial break. But I'm just saying, I think if you can set a piano on fire, uh, you can probably figure out how to pre-sound check an instrument. Uh, listen, I, I don't disagree with you. In the early 2000s, everything vocal had to be live, right? How do we get from there to here? Eurovision has a rule that you can only have six people on stage. Right. In addition to that, 
all vocal performance had to take place on stage. Right. If you have a duet, you can only bring four more people. Right. I will say, to go back to our Broadway comparison, Broadway these days has the same limits, but it's, that's an economic thing. No more than six people on stage anymore. <laughs> <laughs> the dance can only be to a certain degree because if I have backing vocals in this song, they have to be able to do both. Yes. Or I'm going to have to have like two dancers, three backing vocalists, and the artist, and that's all six. Right. So you start seeing experimentation with all these ways that you can be like, okay, the backing vocals are performed on stage, but we want a change of the visuals. Loreen, who won this year, won with Euphoria in 2012, she had backing vocalists on stage. They just didn't like them. And they put them off to the sides, so they're in compliance. And I think the more people do that, a rule starts to become arbitrary. Right. Because it, at the point that it, it only exists for everybody to get around it and you're, you know, burying your backup vocalist deep under the stage so no one can see. That's not just a theoretical thing you're saying. Yeah. Literally, the stage design in 2014 had this like pit connected to the stage that was literally designed as a direct workaround of the rule where it was like, technically, this is a part of the stage, you just cannot see them. Right. 2015 is oh. now the year where they officially say, backing vocalists do not have to be on stage. Right. They still have to be performed live. And you still have to count them within the six people that right. you can have. Right. 2015, Sweden win, uh, a common theme in the competition, with Mons Zelmerlöv, who had the song Heroes. Yeah. He's alone on stage. But he has five live backing vocalists off stage. See, kind of every time they change a rule, the Swedes really get in there. <laughs> they, uh... You watch the performance that Mons does there and how he communicates with the projections. And you really realize that the backing vocalist would be in the way. It would be a confusing storytelling. Right. But in regards to the song, you still need them. Right. That's really one aspect of it, right? You limit the physical production when you force an artist to put singers on stage. But there's a songwriting component to this too, right? With vocal processing, with the full range of technology that songwriters have at their disposal these days, you can do really cool things if you integrate vocals truly into a pre-recorded track. Only five voices is very limiting. Take something like an Imagine Dragons or mm -hmm. Enya. What yeah. they both have in common is like when you're going to put that song together, you're going to stack it much higher than five tracks. If you need to create this ethereal sounds with a hundred singers humming and ooh and Or the idea that you don't want other singers beyond your main vocalist. You want their vocals 10 times, right? And I would love to say that that rule change came out of artistic innovation. It did not. How did it come about, Magnus? So there was a little incident that happened in 2020 called um, COVID. We go into 2021 and there's a lot of fear around whether the competition can go. Yeah. They have to plan for many different things. Yeah. There was an option where we're going to perform in uh, front of an empty arena. Something I'm very familiar with. <laughs> yes. <laughs> because they wanted to be able to limit the size of the delegations, again, right. to make sure that the competition could happen, they temporarily removed the requirement of backing vocals needing to be live. Right. Hearing live backing vocals through masks, <laughs> just a little bit. So this rule happens in 2021 in yeah. the Netherlands. Then in 2022, in Italy, in Turin, they repeat the rule. 
There's still uncertainty. But then you have this year. The rule is still in place. Yeah. You can't really argue COVID anymore. So you have this rule that's introduced as a way to make sure that the competition can happen. Yes. And because of it, there's also a lot less pushback than if they change it in in a normal year. After that, I think we also see songs enter the competition that you go, this couldn't exist in the world where everything has to be sung live. There, there is one more rule that we should talk about that happened around this year 2000 inflection point, which is an increasing move away from jury control. I think it's maybe a little idealistic to say, but it's at least a nice idea that Eurovision has been at its strongest when the people at the very top don't try to control everything. You know, take someone like Billie Eilish. Yeah. For those of you who don't know, Billie Eilish represented Slovenia oh. in... <laughs> well, where is he going with this? Billie Eilish becomes the biggest artist in the world based on her doing music production with her brother in her childhood home. Yeah. Beating out the experts, beating out the seasoned professionals, even the person with the most successful track record is going to have a song that's a dud. And then someone who has zero experience are going to break through. Yes, 100%. The difference between this period where we're starting to see these Eurovision artists hitting the charts again in, in a really big way and the period that we started the episode with, the very beginning of the competition, is it is a much more self-conscious thing, right? If you go to the Eurovision website, they always uh, shared the broadcast numbers. In the last few years, they're directly talking about the charts. Yes. They're directly talking about number of streams Streams, on YouTube. Yeah. I think that there are still steps that, for me personally, the contest should take. And I thought about this particularly watching Riley, who represented Denmark last year. This is an artist who just blew up over the course of the pandemic. Huge TikTok following, collaborations with major K-pop stars. Artists like him have the potential to widen Eurovision's audience even further. I thought the song that he brought was really, really good. I mean, Uh, I loved it too. So Breaking My Heart is a song that its musical freshness and innovation comes from a couple of things. You have your singer constantly navigating into his falsetto, right? You have this sort of vocoder chorus that, again, the lead vocal is in a falsetto and somehow needs to fill an arena. If we could go back to the start, but we still be falling apart. I'm not scared to love you, but I'm scared of breaking my heart. I have no official information on this, but every time I watch a Eurovision broadcast, I'm like, they keep these vocals so dry. There, yeah. There's not a lot of reverb on them. There's not the reverb that you would typically hear, I think, on a television broadcast. And beyond that is the rule against using live auto-tune, Right. Yeah. The argument is like, it will decrease the level of talent that the Eurovision singer has. Well, there is this sort of, especially when it comes to autotune, I think there's an interesting thing where you kind of go, take shares, believe, Yeah, right? She used autotune as an artistic choice, right. not because she couldn't sing. There are kinds of singing that you cannot do live as reliably. Right now, if I were to write a Eurovision song for someone, right. I would stay away from some of the really cool, innovative techniques that are in Breaking My Heart. He 
is clearly a very, very talented vocalist, you 100%. know, who whose voice sits very comfortably in a register that uh, a lot of singers right. can't sing. Right. And it's like, no, do I think he's a less talented singer than someone who sings a more traditional ballad that sits like in a very safe part of your voice right. that we've been hearing at Eurovision for the past 67 years? Not at all. If we could go back to the start, then we'd still be falling apart. I'm not scared to fuck you, but I'm scared of breaking my heart. If we could go back to the start, then we'd still be falling apart. Yeah, I'm not scared to fuck you, but I'm scared of breaking my heart. Now I remember. What I think is interesting about it is the fact that even the best singers in the world now all have their songs tuned in, as part of the production process. Oh, of course. And it's also because our ears have changed. You know? Yeah. I, I especially think about this with musical theater albums. Oh, 100%. Uh, you recorded an artist's voice and you didn't tune it. I think that this question of whether Eurovision should aim for the charts or aim for cultural diversity is kind of a false choice, right? Yeah, I think the answer is all of the above. Yes. Right? What we've kind of been working towards this whole episode is that Eurovision, the EBU, I think they do best when they chill with trying to control, right? <laughs> Looking at the history of Eurovision, I think it is this thing where you get diversity out of just letting people do what they want. Okay, let's get to the interviews. First up, we're talking to Joker Out, who have taken off post-Eurovision. We talk about their history as a band and also how Eurovision can best serve its artists. Then we talk to Telly Leung, who you may have seen starring in Allegiance or Aladdin on Broadway, or in Glee or Netflix's Warrior. He's an expert in vocal technique and brings that knowledge to a game evaluating Eurovision vocal performances uh, that we're calling Killer Notes or Killer Nodes. But first, let's listen to Joker Out's 2023 Eurovision entry, Carpe Diem. <laughs> Okay, so we are here with Joker Out, the shagadelic Slovenian band who took Liverpool by storm last year with their hit Carpe Diem. They followed that up with the single Novi Val and an English version uh, that featured Elvis Costello. The Sunny Side of London is streaming on all platforms now. Welcome, guys. Welcome. <laughs> Thank you. No, I think we just wanted to start and talk about the sort of history of the band. I guess that uh, in 2012, I formed a band called Apocalypsa. It was, at the beginning, mostly a cover band. And that's how we, or I guess that's how I met Chris. Just him coming to a show that we played in their primary school for like the end of the year or something. Bruno Mars and Jason Mraz, if I remember correctly. <laughs> and Bigfoot Mama, which is Chris's father, was the guitarist and the lyricist of the band. So the first words I've ever heard out of Chris's mouth was, that song doesn't use distortion on guitar. And he just went away. <laughs> Sticking with the earliest uh, version of the band. So can you talk a little bit about Kotsertsi Kikri Pagania and what the inspiration was for it? Isn't it bizarre how we were like teenagers? We created like the stupidest music video ever. 
and now like serious journalists are watching. Oh, we're not serious. <laughs> it was also the first song ever that I wrote in, let's say, completion. And the moment I wrote it, I remember just like being, oh my God, this is a hit. <laughs> and then you took a break in 2019. What was that period like and what inspired you to come back together? So that was the time after the release of our second single, which was in comparison to the first one, Kotsitsiki Kripoganya, really successful. And people started noticing us outside of the little bubble that we had. But somehow, creatively, we didn't see where it was going. But the good thing is that right before the, we took the hiatus, we jammed out a song idea that I had. And like after four months of not playing together, we went to get some coffee and Chris showed me the, the demo recording, like a voice note recording of what we played there. And a few days later, we started doing this song, which in the end ended up being Gola, which was the first song ever for us to go like outside of just the national radio. Now that I think about it, one, one thing which maybe also held us back before Gola happened was that we had this other producer who produced Mamlen Otelo. Mm -hmm. And then before Gala, we started to work with this other producer who we still work with now. That was Jarko Pak. And he really took us into another direction. And he is now the sixth member of the band. Like, Yeah, well, and it's interesting because Gola does have such a different sound and it, it does seem like listening to your work, it's the moment when things changed. I think mm -hmm. Omamalo Tello and Kotsertsiki Kripoganya. I'm sorry to every... You're doing of really good, by the way. Incredible. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the early songs, they have almost a 90s grunge feel. And then Gola and then Umasune Measley. I'm sorry again. <laughs> but Umasune Measley as an album really feels like where you found your kind of 70s shagadelic retro rock sound. Jare is really, he's a 60s guy. He, he produced all of these legendary artists. And one of those happened to be also Bigfoot Mama where my father played in and our family and Jare's family were, fam we were family friends. Do you and Jare ever complain about your dad together? Said, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Jare has such a personality. We, so we make fun of my dad and other artists he works with and he makes fun of us with the other artists he works with. He's like the kind of guy who, when you're with him, makes you feel like you're like really bad, bad and shitty. Uh, we all consider him like an uncle or something. Yeah, so three really, uncles. Like, like Rick and Morty uncles. Yeah, yeah. In the COVID times, actually, we got a lot of recognition. So basically, the band got, I would say, 300% bigger in the times of COVID because we really used the media space that we were allowed to have and somehow managed to sell out two shows before we announced the album, yeah. And we wanted to release it in March of 2020. Why, why didn't that happen? <laughs> <laughs> Nobody knows. And we had already a lot of the material prepared, but it was honestly not up to par. And so COVID was a blessing in disguise for us yeah, because it allowed us uh, for a year and a half to rethink the whole thing. And that also brought us to um, one of our biggest decisions yet, which was to switch out our drummer. And that's when Yure came in. That's when we had to 
make our first big and like um, horribly grown up decision yeah. of letting letting someone go after like basically nine years of being together. The drummer was with me from 12 years of age on. When you have to decide after nine years of having to let your best friend go is really like the hardest thing possible. But we did. And then the album came together much night, much more. We just got, there was a little window between the second and third wave of COVID in Slovenia where we could have these shows. And that was in October of 2021. Yeah. We like one week after the shows, it was full lockdown again. And we had probably. We caused a big spike of COVID probably. Yeah. Like. Everyone who was at that show got sick. That would... I don't know, but as they say, carpe diem, right? Yeah. <laughs> On the second album, The Money, I really took the turn and wrote everything like directly for myself. Navival has an interesting story. We were in the studio creating The Money and we were one song out. So one song was missing and we had huge fires in Slovenia in, in the Karst region. And it felt like we were like obligated to say something about it. Like we are really ripping our world apart ourselves. And so the first line, which means where do we go from here if we're already like setting our horizon on fire, came to life and then Nobival New Wave. You guys are rockers, which is not necessarily, you know, Eurovision's strongest suit historically. So what was your, yeah, what was your relationship to the contest like growing up? I think we all said that Eurovision has always been like a family, like a second Christmas, basically. Like the whole family get gathers around TV and I've been very much attracted to how chaotic and how diverse the, the competition was. I've never considered myself a rocker. I'm much more of a poppy guy if, I, if you list, look at my playlist, I guess. So Eurovision was really like spot on for me. I love all the glitter and the glam about it. But yeah, Ruslana and Lordi era was the time that I started like actively noticing what's going on on the stage. So I've, I've always been a huge fan and always thought about what it has to be like to stand on that stage. So it actually happening is something still surreal to me. And looking back at the footage, it, it's still hard to like, put together that it's actually us who is on the stage. My first earliest memory of Eurovision is Lordi winning in 2006. And I thought, okay, this is really interesting. But then I don't know what happened in a couple of years. I didn't really follow it so much, but my, my family watch it every year. But like when, when satellite happened in 2010, that re revitalized my interest in Eurovision. And after that were my golden years of Eurovision. It was the um, uh, Azerbaijan song, which I really love, Running Scared. That, yeah, actually, we met Eli, which was like, I was yeah. struck. That was great. And then 2012, like, that was probably... That was euphoria. euphoria. Yeah. So then uh, moving to the selection process for Slovenia, it moved to an internal process for your year. Because your act was so successful, would you say that like that's probably the process that they should keep moving forward? Because there's always this argument of let the people vote. So how, how do you think about that? I think meeting somewhere halfway would be the best possible option. A lot of hype is all, all already created in the Eurovision world with the pre-selections. So getting that traction, I think, already gets you a lot of fans before you even being selected. I do believe that 
picking an artist that already has a catalog of music is the right way to go. But I guess like picking out a few artists like that and making them compete could be a great thing for viewers and artists. I think it, it, it depends so much from country to country whether like a, a voted on competition can attract the more established artists. Right. I think in yeah. some countries, those processes only attract kind of newer people or then you have something like Melody Festival in, in Sweden, which the biggest artists in Sweden will compete. Right. In Sweden, the big acts know that the, the whole country will stand behind them 100% with a big budget. I think it's also part of the reason why a lot like Slovenian reputable artists, let's say, avoided going to Eurovision. I do think there's an element to Eurovision where a success of a bigger artist in the country can change sort of perception for other artists going into future years. I know I grew up in Norway when Alexander Ryback won. That really changed the popularity of the contest and what artists were interested. I think there's actually even a thing on a greater scale, much greater scale. Artists in Slovenia now see that it is absolutely possible to go outside of our borders with Slovene language which was absolutely never the case in the history of Slovene language. You did bring up like an, another side of this, which I, was something that I think I noticed last year, more than a few previous years, which is the difference in budgets of Eurovision acts. You have certain countries that are pouring a million dollars into their acts. We're literally at Euro Club in Liverpool when someone yeah. tipped me off to the pricing sheet for all the effects. It was not directly confirmed, but essentially confirmed. And there were wild prices. Right. And so it's like how if you're representing a country that's essentially not one of the big five, it, 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 in a certain way that puts you at a disadvantage. So did you guys feel that when you were uh, in Liverpool? I'd say for any uh, artists, which comes from a small country with a smaller budget, it is a quite disheartening realization of what you're up against. But it just takes a little bit more effort. And I think it makes it even sweeter in the end. We became fans of Eurovision, not just for the winners, the whole competition and the, the whole thing itself. So it just comes down to what you're looking for in Eurovision. So to talk a bit about uh, Liverpool and that experience, I mean, it must have been wild. I mean, the whole experience was quite draining, but more so physically than mentally, I'd say, because contrary to what we had expected, a lot of the competition elements, which we thought were going to be so present, were actually not. A lot of the co-competitors we met were actually really nice people, and we established some very friendly bonds with them. There's actually been an idea. We were thinking of like booking an entire resort in May and just like inviting all the artists that were with us so we can watch Eurovision together in a completely like carefree setting. carefree setting, like by the pool, drinking pina coladas. <laughs> yeah. You guys performed at Euro Club, like I think a night or two before the semi. The Euro Club gig, especially, it was the first actual gig or like the second actual gig we had in, in this year. And it was so liberating to finally be able to play like instruments and hear yeah. what you are playing on your guitar and like people reacting to your live concert. Okay, I'm just going to add that for me, there was definitely a lot of pressure psychologically. It's crazy how many interviews you can have <laughs> in such a short period of time. And just there was this huge fear for me for the first time ever of what the hell happens if I lose my voice and 160 million people are watching and I'm not able to sing. 
I was feeling a bit nauseous when we were talking about playing at the Euro Club two nights before, because so many things can go wrong. You can get ill or something. Bojan, you and Karia, fans have been really going crazy over your friendship. I, I don't know if you've seen that people shipping you two together. In these stories, there are adventures in space, underwater, and also at late night discos. So Bojan, describe what you think your perfect date with Karia would be. <laughs> I think actually we've already had a perfect date with Karia. It's, I would describe it as the final gig we had in Tampere. And we went to the sauna first, just the band. And after the sauna, we all went to a karaoke club and just spent a really cool night dancing and singing and having a great time talking about things that are really deep, actually, at some moments. I've never had fan fiction written about me and neither had and we talked about these things and we laughed about it and for the first time had a sincere conversation about how crazy is everything that's going on and how happy we were for each other that like things are going in the right direction so yeah i'd say that was already the perfect date amazing and wait what were your guys's karaoke songs Ooh, <laughs> you sang flowers weird uh, water I song Britney with someone with, with, with hit yeah. me ba- no, I, no we, 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 we sang hit me baby one more time yeah and we sang bass hunter all I oh, by bass hunter and I just jumped into Titi Ebony of a poor girl who was trying to sing on her own that's amazing can you talk a bit about No Evil and particularly then the English version and Elvis Costello collaboration what was that like working with him it was really weird because we've never met him in person we just talked over emails and we had to find like a weird way of doing this over the internet but I guess we got used to things like that during COVID but it somehow created this really cool moment of us waiting for when is it going to be the first moment we meet Elvis and when are we going to sing it together for the first time we saw that Elvis had a concert in Oslo a day before our concert and we just wrote an email saying that we would love to come see the show. So (laughs) a matter of a day, we just came to the opera house, met Elvis, had a sound check and played in the freaking Oslo opera house for the first time. And it was, it was really something that you cannot make up. We even got a standing ovation. Yeah, it was really cool. It was really cool. Carpe Diem and Novival were released in both Slovenian and English. The sunny side of London is just in English. Can you talk about that decision and what makes the song right for a multilingual release? So multilingual releases are something that I'm pretty sure we're going to try and keep away from as much as possible in the future, just because it really doesn't work, or at least it didn't work for us. It worked in New Wave because it was Elvis writing the song, not me writing the lyrics and also pouring himself into it because it was a duet. How have things been after your vision? Tell us more about the touring. How things changed for you? Life after Eurovision, I can't say it is exactly how we envisioned it, but it's definitely what we wanted, let's say, because we wanted to represent our country the best way possible. But also our, let's say, personal goals always have been to perform outside of Slovenia and Eurovision definitely allowed us to do that. You said that you've been accepting gigs all over the place. So I guess the natural question is, when are you coming to the US? Yeah. I don't know. The U.S. 
U.S. is such a mystical place for you, a European artists. It's always the question of when will we break the U United States and all of, by the time our third album is out, when we have more English material, which would be much more palatable to a U.S. audience. That is the time when we start appearing there, like in physical form. Yeah, we are very excited for that day that you guys do. Thank you so much for spending the time with us. This was really great, guys. Thank you. It was really deep and back to the roots. So thanks. <laughs> thanks for being so knowledgeable about the thing. And yeah, it means oh, well, a lot to us. No, seriously. Thank you guys for, for deep diving with us on this. This was really cool. Euroverse. We've talked a lot on the show about what makes a Eurovision act successful, but we haven't talked about one of the most time-honored ways to put a Eurovision act over the top. A moment of vocal fireworks. It's a way that you can give a performer a moment to just show off. And hopefully through that, you make your numbers stand out. But the problem with showcasing a performer that way, obviously, is that if either the performer, the songwriter, or the director is not doing their job properly, you could end up with a disaster and the dreaded null pois. So to help us sort through what makes a vocal showcase moment work, we got one of Broadway's best voices, Telly Leung. You may have seen Telly as a warbler on Glee, or you may have seen him starring in Godspell, Aladdin, or Legions on Broadway. Telly is not only a performer at the highest level, he's also a professor of vocal performance. So he is the perfect guest for a game we're calling Killer Notes or Killer Nodes. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, so happy that you're here. And what we're going to do is we're going to play you a moment from a Eurovision song. Um, up until the time the singer attempts a gorgeous high note or a melisma or something that I don't even know if there are words for. <laughs> um, then, knowing what you do about voice, song, and performance, we'd like you to tell us if we're about to see a mind-blowing moment of vocal fireworks or a disaster. Then we'll watch the moment and see if the singer soars or falls very flat. Okay, I'm really excited. Yeah, I think this is going to be cool, not just because it'll be a hopefully fun game. Yes. Uh, <laughs> but, but, but I think we can talk a bit about from the songwriter side, from the performer yeah. side, if an act is going to lean into a moment like this, what kind of preparation needs to happen, um, what kind of song... And um, what can a director do to not make a singer's life hell? Totally. And also kind of risk versus payoff, right? You have this one yes. moment in the sun and you, you get that one shot and it has to work then. Before we get into the game, we always like to start out with the question, what do you currently, prior to this game, know about Eurovision? I actually knew very little about Eurovision until 2019. I happened to be doing a concert and doing a little bit of teaching in Edinburgh. And my friend who I was staying with was like, oh, well, tonight's the Eurovision finals. We have to go. And I walked into a house of homosexuals, like ready. <laughs> Sounds very familiar. Ready. They were ready for this finale. They had little flags. <laughs> people were like, sh like, people were shushing me. Right before their favorite country was about to perform, I was like, what is this world of entertainment that I have no clue about that people on the other side of the world are like, this is their Super Bowl. This is their Tony Award. This is their Grammys. Telly, you're just going to have to pitch our podcast from now on. Like that <laughs> I is, mean, that is the best pitch yeah. for why people should watch Eurovision. I also wonder if this random friend in Edinburgh was just like, Magnus in a mustache and glasses. <laughs> yeah. it's, uh, Hello, it's Scottish Magnus. <laughs> I'm going to publicly thank my friend Murray for exposing me to the absolute madness. The funny part was my friend yeah. Murray, like, it's not madness to him. He's grown up with it. So he's like, yes. all right, here's another Eurovision party that we're going to go to. And, but I was like, 
what's happening? Like, pour me another drink. This was exactly my experience. And also the fact that his name is Murray, like also lends <laughs> itself to my theory that it, that it was like, yes, my name is Murray. <laughs> uh, it is this thing where you're like in this room full of people and everybody's like, oh yeah, what's going on on screen is totally normal. Yeah. And you're like, wait, seriously? And also the spectacle of it. It's bigger than the Grammys. It's like the Olympics. Do you have moments or numbers that you remember at all? No, you know what? The, I left the Eurovision party. And then I realized, well, certainly I've heard Eurovision songs. As, as a flaming homosexual myself, I was like, right, like Netta, Conchita, and ABBA. I was like, got it. Okay, there's a long, rich history here that me, as the American, just wasn't exposed to. I was banging my head against my hands. Like, why? Why is this something I never knew about before? I have seen the Eurovision movie, oh, which good. I think is actually brilliant. I and think I, it's kind of amazing. I loved it. And how much like accuracy is in there and actual acts from Eurovision? We spoke to the director and he said it was actually not intended for an American audience at all. It yeah. was a Netflix project purely for Europe. Oh, wow. And it became the number one movie in the US. It's kind of insane. And I do think- Again, I'm, why there needs to be a podcast. Yeah. When you sort of look at Eurovision in America, like basically from like 1976 to 2019, there was only one Eurovision song that made it to the Billboard Hot 100 in America. Eurovision movie comes out 2020 and then three songs chart the next three years. Oh, the other big thing is the Eurovision winner in 2019 was the first one to chart, but it didn't chart until 2021, which was, again, after the movie. In all contexts, thank you, Will Ferrell, for all that you do. (laughs) (laughs) He's married to a Swedish woman. And I think the first time he was over there, the family gathered for like watching Eurovision. And he's like, what is this? And I think it's a similar thing. Honey, don't talk. (laughs) The idea that you can have a four hour broadcast with zero commercial breaks is kind of insane. Yes. (laughs) Where people will shush you for four hours. (laughs) (laughs) It's a great experience. Everyone should try it. Anyway, all that being said, Are you ready for the game? I am so ready for this game. Amazing. Amazing. First, we've got Dancing in the Rain, which was Spain's 2014 entry, performed by Ruth Lorenzo. That's all I get? That's all I'm going to give you for this one. That's all I get. And I have to decide whether or not she's going to give me a killer note or a killer node after this. Yes. I'm a little scared. I have to be honest. Yeah. I'm a little nervous because I hear her nervous. Yeah. I was going to say she sounds a little scared. The easy part of the song. I'm a nervous for you, Ruth. Um, I also just want to say that I, I, I love the emotionality you're bringing to this, <laughs> yes. too. Not only do we get a comprehensive sort of evaluation of the performance, we get like a window into her soul. I think that's the theater teacher in me. I root for every student. You know what I mean? Yeah. I think, so I, like if this was my student, I'd be like, oh, God, breathe. Take a deep breath. Uh-oh. Favorite part? Where's the mic stand? <laughs> First of all, the projections on the stage, right, brilliant. Right. And the aerial shot, work. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. You think it's over, but she's oh, like, she's got more. <laughs> Bilingual. Give it to me in two languages. 
Okay, so she's a trick bag. She knew exactly. She yes. was like, I'm going to go, she's I'm like, gonna I'm going to sing it on the word day is going to be like a little bit not like correct. And, and she's then... going to make you worry. And then she goes, I got this. Yeah. I got this. Ha ha. And she's like, why do I even need this? Right. I was, she was like, you thought I was going to miss that note, but I had it all along. I'm going to assign this song to my students. <laughs> like that song. If you need 16 bars, sing that. Well, and I will say the other reason I kind of uh, gravitated towards this as an example is like from a songwriting perspective, yeah. there really was just like, let's create space. If It's just repeat the rain for fucking a whole minute. And like, and like old Norwegian folk music, they take away the words essentially. It just spells about feeling, you know? Help. It's not about changing the word anymore. It's just about what the rain means. Oh. So next we have Israel's 2010 entry, which is sung by Harel Scott. And the song is called Milim. Well, he's very handsome. Is Harel single? Is what I would like to say. <laughs> he was at the time. I think he's in a relationship now. Oh, really? Basing that on following him on Instagram. <laughs> yes, Queen. He's very confident. I mean, if you look like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it comes. So I'm, I am, I am hopeful and optimistic that he's going to give me a killer note. All right, Harel. Okay. See what you got. Eval's the worst. Oh, yeah. Felt it, though. That's the thing. It's the thought that counts. He made up for it. Yeah, he makes up for it at the end. It was definitely not what you want millions of people to see. And, yeah. You know, for us now three to, like, sit here and talk about. Yeah, isn't it great that I dug that up? Is this game cyberbullying? Is that what we're doing? But I will say he was like, uh, the end of that song is pretty great. One of the interesting things about it is if we had more time and you watched the whole number, vocally, he's like amazing. He's great. Yeah. I am a fan of a live key. A key that you have in the recording studio that sounds crazy that you can go cut. Let's do that again. Like, yeah. why not do a live key? Nobody is sitting at home with a pitch pipe going. You will hear some composers be like, oh my God. And like this key, it just like makes everything sound like that. And you're like, no. How does it sit on the singer's voice? That's right. It's so straightforward that people keep trying to come up with like more complicated things than what's the lowest note that they sound natural singing? <laughs> what's the highest note that sounds like there's a little bit of work in it, but they can hit it every time. But also you and I are from the world of eight shows a week. The way Eurovision works is it's like they have a semifinal they have to perform in that week. They then are also like doing interviews and then they also perform both the semifinal and the final three times. Mm. With an audience. They basically uh, practice the filming of the show. So they sell out the arena right. for all shows the night before the jury would vote. So that means the night before is very important. And then day of, you would have the family show, which is like the dress rehearsal essentially. And then that night, the broadcast. So right. in two so, days, yeah. he does that three times. But in the week, he does it six times. And then in addition to that, his interview schedule is probably eight hours a day. It's like opening week on Broadway, you're doing eight shows, but also Good Morning America. Right. Okay, next is Romania's 2010 entry, Pola selling and Ovi playing with fire. So, playing with fire, uh-oh. Already I sounds know. risky and dangerous. I know. I like the see-through piano. I know, right? Well, she's a bop, but like, I don't, is there a high note coming? I guess there is, huh? There, there is. And honestly, I have to say, I did not expect it. <laughs> okay, That's well. the beauty of your. I mean, so times. maybe I'm going to also be optimistic here. And I'm going to say, I think it's going to be a killer note. This is just like such a great uh, advertisement for NYU's vocal performance program. <laughs> because like, 
how you are nurturing all of these Eurovision singers I, is just like the most incredible. Does some of that fire leap downstage? Yep. Oh. Mm -hmm. All right, Sarah Brightman. <laughs> Andrew Lloyd Webber wants I'm, that check. Listen, seriously, that's the Phantom of the Opera is Absolutely. there inside Eurovision. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. She's like, I'm a voice major. Yeah. I, I, I did my arias at school. I'm I, fucking classy, all right? She, right. I, she said, you give me three minutes, hold my purse. I'm a real, I'm a real musician. <laughs> yeah. I did not expect a head voice moment. In the songwriting, everybody knows what this money thing to do is. Like the, the most straightforward, like place it really mm -hmm. powerfully, put it in the like meat of someone's voice. It's always so exciting when someone makes a choice like that. <sighs> It's Make that sort thing. of bop musically where you're yes. sort of like, this is like a repeat and fade yes, moment. 100%. And I'm sure that they were like, we can't like repeat and fade. Yeah, this is a live like, song. You need yeah. a button. <laughs> and she's like, oh, I got it. She's like, I got it. You got yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. yeah. No, I like Everyone it. take five. I'm <laughs> all for it. I'm all for it. <laughs> so we have got Manuel Navarro's Do It For Your Lover, which is Spain's 2017 entry. Spain is back. Do it for your lover. Do it for your Do lover. It for me, Manuel. <laughs> so many things I've yes. confused by. <laughs> I think this is going to be a killer node. I can already hear the whole thing's in his throat. So I'm just yeah. a little nervous. Yeah. Manuel, you're very pretty on the eyes. Very, very pretty. And a little terrified because I feel like we're about to go from like a Rastafarian Bob Marley yeah. high note. And I don't know if it's going to go well. But then again, you know what? The, the Spanish have tricked me before. I know. Well, that's the best. In the game as well. Yes. Yes. Yeah, yeah. so, I don't know. I think it's a killer node. Killer node. All right. Nope. Nope. You didn't. He didn't breathe. I no, know. You, you, you got to drop your jaw and breathe. I know. See, this you don't, you don't have to eat. You need a vocal coach. Yes, I was going to say. He literally went like this. He's like, the camera's on me. I'm not going to breathe or make any space for the notes on that. I'm just going to cry. Like, that's literally what happened. He just, he was like, he went, oh, crap. There's a camera. I have, there's a camera I, coming. I, yes. I can't breathe. I have to just look pretty, look pretty. Oh, God, I have to sing a high note. I have that's to. Exactly that's, I think, 100% what happened. And that is like my favorite thing about this clip is like, the story he tells on his face before that note comes. Oh, it doesn't help that the music drops. Yeah. So that doesn't help either. That it's also very exposed. But it also feels like that sort of song is like a feel good. I want to like yeah. sip, a, sip a pina colada well, that's... on the beaches of Barcelona. Just like ch chill into a groove. At no point is that song ever asking for a, a high note either. Yes. This might be the flip side of what we were talking about with Romania's number. Because you're like lined up against like 30 other songs, you need to stand out some somehow. And so like a quiet vibey song is not going to stand out. So it's like sometimes you have something really creative, like what Romania did, as you said, a pretty vibey song. Yeah. Found a melismatic, operatic right. thing. Yeah. But then you take some surf rock and you like throw a, a, a like money note in the middle of it. And like with the singer who clearly like that's not his vibe. I, poor Manuel. I know. I know. If he dropped his, if he dropped his jaw and he took a good breath, he would have got, he would have had it. God, the number of times I've been told that. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> so Magnus, would you like to introduce oh, the next? Okay. So next up we have Albania's 2012 entry, Rona Nishlius Sus. 
Drama. He is. She brings drama. Shirley Bassey, give it to me. <laughs> because she's giving me a Shirley Bassey vibe, I think she's going to give me killer notes. Okay. Oh, God. Dramatic. Such drama. But why straight tone, though? It's- why straight? <laughs> no. Just spin, girl. Spin. Oh, my God. That note's not in the court. That note's not in the court. She's acting down. <laughs> She's been through something. And she cut it out on that stage. <laughs> hurt people, hurt people. I don't. Oh, my God. I don't. A little vibrato and a little spin is just saves you on pitch centers. Mm-hmm. Also, why is he blindfolded? I don't understand. Like, if you're yeah. straight tone, you better be the cleanest, most, like, almost auto-tuned cockapella singer. Yes. A little bit of spin just gives you a little bit of room, especially those long, like... I was going to say, like, these notes. piercing head voice notes without any vibrato on that. It, it was just... It, and without any warmth. It all just felt a little under. Yes. And so that was 100% uh, my feeling. Now, I, this was a very celebrated Eurovision song. She brought the drama... And sometimes the commitment can overcome yes. the vocal performance. I mean, but that we've seen that on Broadway. I won't name names. <laughs> <laughs> You've definitely seen a few of those performances where you go, has she just sung the whole show about a half pitch under? But then again, you forgive it because they're- Nod yeah, because the name is- <laughs> Because you're in it. You're in it with her. There's a part of me when that happens, I have to like divorce my musical ear and just be in it. Speaking of vibrato and that, how that may or may not be able to help. Yep. Next we have Il Volo with Grande Amore. This is Italy's 2015 entry. All right. Yes. Oh, I'm so sorry. Did you not cut it? Can you guess whether that note, <laughs> those notes that they were singing? Well, I was gonna. I was waiting for the thing, but I, but they sound fab. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Even if I had cut it, this one is a little bit of a tough one to make tricky. But, but what's interesting, in the beginning, they were like giving me a smoky vocal. Yeah. And they were very like. That was like, the one thing I thought. Very like this. Start at the beginning. And like maybe I smoked like a lot of cigarettes. <laughs> and then they were like that. You know what I mean? Yes. Was, all of a sudden, yes. you were like, oh, there it is. <laughs> yeah. you know, I love when they came back when. Italy hosted to perform. Yeah. But one of them got COVID. So one of them was like just a gigantic being on the screen. On a, just a big Zoom screen. Okay, so finally, we got Krasimir Avramov's Illusion, Bulgaria's 2009 oh entry. Oh my God, no Letta. Look at him. Nyashly Bulgarski. Okay, 2009. <laughs> uh, the costumes, first of all. I know. Before you even press play, the costumes. I know. I, it's moments like this where I'm really sad that Spirit Halloween closed. I mean, because... <laughs> Yes, Beyonce fans. <laughs> I'm very nervous. With any time a guy starts singing like this, yeah. a little Mickey Mouse voice, I get just a little nervous. The, the music has changed and all we get is a as a cape and a fan. I'm yeah. nervous. I think yeah. it's a killer notes moment. I think it, I, I will say I think it is very tough when you have to come in with a moment like this oh God. out of nothing. I'm scared. Key change. Whoa. Well, she's fat. 
They should have just let her sing the whole thing. I just know. Let her sing the whole thing. He's hot and all. Right. In his party city costume. And couldn't like, return the costume. He had to use just it. Just let her sing it. I know. She was fierce. She was giving me these wonderful Middle Eastern scales. And, and like, I love that she emerges out of nowhere, yeah. right? Bulgaria, like, that's your lead singer. Hey. Simon Cowell would have been like, I'm splitting up this group. <laughs> <laughs> yes. That would have been the smart thing. Oh, and then he would have been in One Direction? Because he's very pretty on the eyes. That's true, yeah. But some, somebody told him he could sing in his head voice. And it was Mickey Mouse. It well, was not. I'm just like, a guy like that is the other side of his voice, like, hello. Yeah. Because oftentimes, guys that have strong falsettos, which that is questionable. Yeah. But like, <laughs> but usually they're basses and baritones. Right, because right. Like because tenors tend to like, their actual voice doesn't go. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so their chords are like thick enough to make sort of that heavier falsetto sound. Yeah. I have very little falsetto because right. I'll like. Because she doesn't need it. That's right. Well, but it's also tricky. Like, I remember like when I was under sitting Angel, I could never do any of that stuff that was like above a high F. Right, right. Can... You were just like, give me a note I can scream yeah. my face People off would be on. like, that sounds so full. And I was like, yeah, it's because I, yeah. I can't do the other thing. My voice doesn't want to do that, you know? Like he probably has a great like baritone rich yes. voice. Yes. This is a lesson and... in making sure the audition process is done correctly. Oh, because he came in with that song and they were like, he's got a great voice. The game was so fun. I don't know what my score was, but I, I, I think, think you did really well. I, I scored oh. a good time. <laughs> yeah, that was really fun, boys. Yes, and with Thank that. I, I really want to like watch Eurovision with you now. Oh my God. Oh my yes, absolutely. We, come, well, come so to here's the thing. We're going to Sweden this year. Stop. Come with. Yeah, it's going to be on. great. I'll hop on over. Yeah. I think it's 100%. really amazing. And just as a reason to gather people. I know. Like, exactly. that's what's really great about it. All these Eurovision parties happening everywhere where people just sit around their television and they for four hours yeah. and drink and eat bad food and like, Which know. is like 100% my favorite kind of yeah. party. So yeah. I think yeah. I, I always refer to uh, Eurovision as the original RuPaul's Drag Race. Yeah, uh-huh. Because a lot of the things we know from Drag Race, whether it's the campness of it all, the over-the-topness, the costumes, the sparkle, the wind machines. The controversies they're... with fascist dictators. The, <laughs> I don't know. I haven't seen Drag Race in a while, but I think that's <laughs> sort of what's... Uh... Anyway. Uh, all right. And with that, Telly, thank you so much. Thanks for, for having me. Oh, we've reached the end once again, Charlie. Can you believe it? I mean, I kind of thought I had reached the end a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, as you check, if you've reached the the, the full end, <laughs> I want to say thank you to our guests. Yes. You know. And, we have many more years ahead of them. Yeah. <laughs> Yes. And next episode, we're deep diving into Eurovision's famous fandom, the history of its fan clubs, the unique character of Eurovision fans, and how the fandom is changing in the modern era. We'll be speaking to Pixie Aventura, a drag queen who you'll recognize from Hulu's Drag Me to Dinner, as well as many of New York City's hottest drag shows. And then we're going to talk to two artists from 2023, Blanca, who represented Poland, and Teodor Andre, who represented Romania. Both of them face backlash and bullying from the Eurovision fandom, and the stories that they have navigating that fandom are well worth the listen. We hope the trolls do not get to you. No. And we hope you have a great week. Yes. And until then, happy Eurovision. Eurovision.